Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 118. Today, we begin a two-part episode on the big Bible question, does the Bible condone slavery? So, hello, friends. Happy weekend to you. Yes, if you're like me, the weekend doesn't mean as much as it used to because, you know, like we talked about, all the days are blending together. But Sundays are still special, at least for me, at least where we are, because our church gathers together. Yeah, it's online, but we worship and we pray together live online, and we listen to the Word together live, and there's testimonies from all of uh, lots of our church people. We have lots of comments on the Facebook live stream, lots of people praying, and, and it's really cool. It's not as cool as being in person, but uh, it's something. It's actually something pretty profound and powerful, and I'm enjoying it. Not Again, not as much as being together in one place, but I'm enjoying it. And I even enjoy the meetings we have afterwards on Zoom because it's just good to see everybody and talk to them and hear from them and, and share with each other and pray for each other and encourage each other. Gosh, I miss that. It's not the same, but it's not bad either. And I actually find myself looking forward to it. I hope you are having an experience like that with your church. If you're looking for an online church or you want to add to your own, uh, check us out at VBC Salinas, Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas on Facebook. Just find the page there and like it, and you will get a notification when we go live, which is usually Sunday mornings at 11 Pacific and Thursday nights at 7 Pacific. Today's Bible readings include Numbers chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 12, Psalms 36, and Philemon 1. And Philemon is our focus passage tonight, and it brings up an important but very controversial topic. Does the Bible condone slavery? And the reason we're talking about that tonight is because the book of Philemon is named after the guy it's written to. The guy it's written to, Philemon, was a Christian, and he apparently owned a bondservant named Onesimus. And Onesimus had sort of run away. And Paul is writing the letter to Philemon to tell him to give Onesimus his freedom. So, does the Bible condone slavery? The answer, it's a little complicated. I actually had an interesting conversation by text this week with friend and fellow pod listener Lamar, who was commenting that some of the slavery spoken of in the Leviticus passages we were reading earlier did sound indeed a lot like the chattel slavery that was practiced by the United States and England and other countries in the 1800s and prior. Lamar's speculation was perhaps God allowed such things, just like he allowed husbands to write their wives a certificate of divorce in the Old Testament times, not because this was a good thing, but as Jesus said, because of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. Now, it's important to remember here that the Israelites were in slavery for hundreds of years, so they knew what it was like. And I think Lamar's uh, explanation of why some levels of servitude would have been allowed in the Old Testament is a pretty sound explanation of what's going on. And I will say that much of the American and England uh, system of slavery that was used in the 1800s and prior was built on kidnapping and it was race-based. It was white people oppressing and kidnapping and enslaving black people. And, and it was a, an abomination and wrong in every, every way. Now, this was not at all what servitude 
in first century New Testament times like. And it wasn't even that. It wasn't what the kind of slavery or bond servanthood spoken of in the Old Testament was like either. They did not practice race-based uh, slavery there. And they did not practice kidnapping there. Um, and in fact, the Bible says that kidnapping somebody to press them into slavery is a capital crime punishable by death in the Old Testament. So in 2017, I wrote a book called The Bible and Racism that addresses how the Bible handles issues of race. Only a fool uses the Bible to justify racism. And yes, I'm very aware that there were many foolish, foolish, foolish preachers that attempted to do just that in prior centuries. Today's question will be answered in part by chapter 6 of The Bible and Racism. And if you'd want to buy that book, it is available on Amazon. And when you buy a copy, I get enough money from Amazon after 60 days. It takes a while. But I get enough money to buy a small box of Raisin Bran, which, you know, is pretty important at my age. (laughs) Well, let's read Philemon and then come back and discuss whether or not the Bible condones slavery. Philemon chapter 1 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in it, in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but out of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you, for a brief time, so that you might have him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your very own self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I'm confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, interesting letter here. Paul is writing to Philemon, who is a believer. The church meets at his house, probably has a lot of money, and he's saying, you know, essentially, listen, man, I could command you to do 
what is right. It is the right thing for Philemon to immediately release Onesimus, the servant, bond servant, doulos, slave. That's the Greek word there, doulos. Paul says he's a doulos of Christ. We're called douloses of Christ. It's not a bad word. We associate the word slave today with racism and brutality, and rightly so. But in the first century, it was a different sort of word. It didn't carry that stigma. Now, I'm not telling you that everybody was like, oh boy, I sure would love to grow up and be a doulos of somebody, but it's just a different sort of stigma, and the word is used very positively in the New Testament in some ways in the sense of following Jesus, and and Paul calls himself that many, many times. But he says it would be good. It's the good thing for you to release Onesimus. It's a good deed. I could force you to do it, but you should do it. And I want you to do it out of the freedom of your conscience. And part of that is so Onesimus would be truly free indeed, released by an act of free will, not an act of compulsion. So, The following selection is from Does the Bible Condone Slavery, uh, chapter 6 in the book The Bible and Racism. And I open that chapter with a quote from a church leader called Clement of Alexandria, who lived from about 150 AD to 215 AD. And he says, The same law commands not to muzzle the ox which treads out the corn, for the laborer must be reckoned worthy of his food. And it prohibits an ox and a donkey to be yoked in the plow together, pointing perhaps to the want of agreement in the case of animals, and at the same time teaching not to wrong any belonging to another race and bring him under the yoke when there is no other cause to allege than difference of race, which is no cause of all, being neither wickedness nor the effect of wickedness. So again, that's early church father Clement of Alexandria, uh, probably written, oh, around 200 AD. This is from... Uh, a guy written in the 300s. His name is Lactantius. He's writing in the 300s. He's an early church leader. He says this, God who produces and gives breath to men will that all should be equal. That is equally matched. Let me pause. I just want to tell you again, this is written, what I'm about to read to you, it's kind of a long passage. This is written by an early church leader, Lactantius, in the 300s AD. Think about how forward-thinking this is in so many ways. God who produces and gives birth to men willed that all should be equal, that is equally matched. He has imposed the same condition of living on all. He has opened wisdom to all. He has promised immortality to all. No one is cut off from his heavenly benefits. In his sight, no one is a slave, no one is a master. For if all have the same father, by an equal right, we are all children. No one is poor in the sight of God, but he who is without justice. No one is rich, but he who is full of virtues. For this reason, neither the Romans nor the Greeks could possess justice. For they had men differing from one another by many degrees, the poor and the rich, the humble and the powerful, private persons and the highest authorities of kings. However, Where all persons are not equally matched, there is no justice, and by its nature, inequality excludes justice. However, someone will say, are there not among you some who are poor and others who are rich in the church? Are not some servants and others masters? Is there not some difference between individuals? There is none, nor is there any other cause why we mutually 
bestow upon each other the name of brothers, except that we believe ourselves to be equal. We measure all human things by the spirit, not by the body. Although the condition of our bodies is different, yet we have no servants, for we both regard and speak of them as brothers in spirit and as fellow servants in religion. Therefore, in lowliness of mind, we are on an equality, the free with the slave and the rich with the poor. The poor. Nevertheless, in the sight of God, we are distinguished only by virtue. The person who has conducted himself not only as an equal, but even as an inferior, he will plainly obtain a much higher rank of dignity in the judgment of God. Again, that was Lactantius 305 AD. So that those two passages above, and there's just tons of others like them, demonstrate the view that the early church had about slavery and race. While there were indeed bond servants in the early church, both slaves and rich, laborers and merchants, foreigners and natives were all accorded the title brother. Although the church in later years would all too often give in to opulence and worldliness, the church in the first few centuries carefully sought to heed Paul and James's biblical warnings against showing favoritism and partiality towards anyone. To read Lactantius's words written around 300 AD is to read refreshing words of equality and unity, words which are reflected in the word of God, but the words which the modern world really hasn't even fully grasped today, even 1700 years later. About six years ago, a Boston Globe columnist and spirituality writer named Marjorie Egan related the following experience from her Catholic church upbringing and left dangling a provocative question. Her question was, and I cut out some of this from the for, for the podcast today, uh, the more of it's in the book, but her basic question was, since the Bible condones slavery and the modern church does not, should not the modern church discount and dismiss what Paul said about other controversial things like homosexuality? So I want to address and I want to challenge the first part of Marjorie's question since most people assume it to be true. Does the Bible, the New Testament in particular, actually condone slavery? Now the answer to that question is sort of complex as we already said. The Bible has been tragically used and abused for centuries in the name of propping up one false ideology or the other. This dynamic happens when humans seek to read into the Bible their own beliefs and search out phrases, words, and stories to justify themselves rather than reading out of the Bible truths for life. Now, I teach, uh, at the time I wrote the book, I was teaching survey-level New Testament and Old Testament courses at a local liberal arts college in Alabama. I don't teach in college now in California, maybe one day, but I have it at the moment. At the beginning of each of those classes I taught, the New Testament and Old Testament classes, I would take a Bible and physically demonstrate two different approaches to Scripture. Holding the Bible over my head, I would explain that we can view the Word of God as authoritative, that we must follow it and submit to it. It's over us. We can't read into the Bible our worldview, our biases, our feelings, our morals, but we must read out of it the foundation for our morals, our worldview, our biases, and our feelings. The view that the Bible is above us represents a high view of Scripture, that it is God's word, not the word of man, and that we must to seek must seek to understand what is written and then follow it. When we understand the grammar, 
vocabulary and context of a Bible passage, in other words, we will know the meaning of that passage and we will follow it. It's a matter of understanding what the Bible is saying to us in that high view of the scripture. Now, the second view of the scripture, the second way we can approach the Bible, I demonstrate by putting my Bible on the floor and I explain to the students that in this approach, the Bible is beneath us. And rather than read out of scripture authoritative direction for our lives, We read into scripture our own views, picking and choosing which scriptures to follow, which to reject and ignore, interpreting what the Bible has to say in light of our own views and opinions and our own moral compass. With this approach, some Bible passages are ignored or completely interpreted by us to mean something entirely different than what the grammar, vocabulary, and context of the passage says. Now, there's technical terms for both of these different approaches to Scripture. Eisegesis, spelled with an E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, Eisegesis denotes the approach that seeks to read meanings into the Bible text, and exegesis identifies the approach that seeks to bring out of the text its intentions and meaning. Now, Dr. James White offers a really good definition of eisegesis here and shows how it differs from an exegetical approach. Dr. White says, Eisegesis is the reading into a text, in this case an ancient text of the Bible, of a meaning that is not supported by the grammar, syntax, lexical meanings, and overall context of the original passage. Eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis, where you read out of the text its original meaning by careful attention to the same things. Grammar, sex, syntax, the lexical meanings of the words used by the author. In other words, how the words were used in his day and in his area. And the overall context of the document. As common as it is, it should be something that the Christian minister finds abhorrent. For when you stop and think about it, the approach of eisegesis muffles the voice of God. If the text of Scripture is in fact God-breathed, and if God speaks in the entirety of the Bible, then eisegesis would involve silencing that divine voice and replacing it with the thoughts and tense and most often the traditions of the one reading it and doing the interpretation. In fact, says Dr. White, in my experience, eisegetical mishandling of the inspired text is the single most common source of heresy or erroneous teaching, division, disunity, and lack of clarity in the proclamation of the gospel. So almost all Christians have engaged in eisegesis at some point, but it's a very dangerous practice. And in this particular case, my use of the word dangerous is quite literal. Eisegetical methods of interpretation have literally led to much bloodshed and acrimony between people who call themselves Christians. There have been wars and killings and thousands of denominational splits, all because we have humans have a tendency to look to Scripture for divine approval of our thoughts, actions, and opinions, rather than seeking to base our thoughts, actions, and opinions on a right understanding of Scripture. Now, in the past, supporters of race-based slavery have engaged in significant and abominable eisegesis in, in reading into Scripture divine commendation for their horrific practices. While it is true that the Bible does not completely ban the practice of bond servitude, a careful examination of the scriptures 
will demonstrate that the bond servitude of the Bible and the race-based slavery of Europe and the Americas are vastly, vastly different. Now, I would like to share a very interesting and extremely important piece of history as a way to close out part one of this podcast and sort of bridge into our discussion tomorrow where we're going to discuss some more passages that talk about slavery in the Bible. Now, I'm going to read a passage from a history book. It's one of the earliest descriptions of Jesus and his followers by somebody that's not in the Bible and was not a Christian. It was written by the Roman governor of Bithynia, a man named Pliny the Younger, and it was addressed to the Roman emperor Trajan. The date of writing uh, of the letter was around 112 AD, and Pliny is writing to inform the emperor of a new movement of people who worship Jesus as God and bind themselves to pledges to not steal, commit adultery, lie, or be untrustworthy. Pliny was very concerned about these strange people who were Christians because they appeared to be him to be members of a secret society which he had forbidden all secret societies in his district. Therefore, thinking himself to be doing the right thing, he captured two young Christian girls and interrogated and tortured them to find out the truth about these Jesus followers. Note below how the two young girls are ministers called deaconesses in the church and they are slaves slash bond servants. This is steady proof from an outside source that the early church viewed slaves as worthy and qualified for some of the most crucial positions that the church had to offer. This is what Pliny said um, 1900 years ago. They declared, these two slave girls, they declared that all the wrong they had committed, wittingly or unwittingly, was this, that they had been accustomed on a fixed day to meet before dawn and sing antiphonally a hymn to Jesus Christ as God and bind themselves by a solemn pledge not to commit any enormity, but to abstain from theft, brigandage, and adultery, to keep their word, and not to refuse to restore what had been entrusted to their charge if demanded. After these ceremonies, they used to disperse and assemble again to share a common meal of innocent food, and even this they had given up after I had issued the edict by edict by which, according to your instructions, I prohibited secret societies. I therefore considered it the more necessary in order to ascertain what truth there was in this account to examine two slave girls who were called deaconesses and even to use torture. I found nothing except a perverted and unbounded superstition. I therefore have adjourned the investigation and hastened to consult you, for I thought the matter was worth consulting you about, especially on account of the members who were involved." For many of every age and rank and of both sexes are already and will be stomached to stand their trial. For this superstition has infected not only the towns, but also the villages and country. Yet it apparently can be checked and corrected. So that's one of the first mentions of Christianity outside of the Bible. It happened in 112. And Pliny is basically saying, look, I caught these two young women who were Christians, who had important roles in the church. They were deaconesses, and they were also slave girls, and I tortured them to get them to tell me what they were up to. The point for our discussion today is that 
within just a few years after the authoring of the New Testament, you have these two ladies who were apparently kind of young in crucial positions in God's church, and they were slaves. And we have massive amounts of writings and dialogue, etc., that demonstrated from the New Testament and in the early church fathers' writings that slavery was not looked down on, that everybody was brothers. That was the ideal. That was also the reality. Did it get perverted later? Was it particularly perverted in the American South and parts of England? Absolutely it was. But when we look tomorrow at what the Bible says about this issue, I think we're going to find very clearly the Bible does not condone slavery and it calls out race-based slavery and in any sort of inequality like that as an absolute abomination. So stay tuned for the continuance of our discussion tomorrow. For now, let's go to Numbers chapter 2, verse 1. In the Christian Standard Bible, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. The Israelites are to camp under their respective banners beside the flags of their ancestral families. They are to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance from it. Judah's military divisions will camp on the east side toward the sunrise under their banner. The leader of the descendants of Judah is Nashon, son of Amminadab. His military division numbers 74,600. The tribe of Ishakar will camp next to it. The leader of the Issacharites is Nathanael, son of Zuar. His military division numbers 54,400. The tribe of Zebulon will be next. The leader of the Zebulonites is Eliab, son of Helon. His military division numbers 57,400. The total number in their military divisions who belong to Judah's encampment is 186,400. They will move out first. Reuben's military divisions will camp on the south side under their banner. The leader of the Reubenites is Eleazar, son of Shidor. His military divisions number 46,500. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to it. The leader of the Simeonites is Shelemiel, son of Zereshadai. His military division numbers 59,300. The tribe of Gad will be next. The leader of the Gadites is Eliasaph, son of Deuel. His military division numbers 45,650. The total number in their military divisions who belong to Reuben's encampment is 151,450. They will move out second. The tent of meeting is to move out with the Levites' camp, which is in the middle of the camps. They are to move out just as they camp, each in his place with their banners. Ephraim's military divisions will camp on the west side under their banner. The leader of the Ephraimites is Elishama, son of Amahud. His military division numbers 40,500. The tribe of Manasseh will be next to it. The leader of the Manassites is Gamaliel, son of Petnazur. His military division numbers 32,200. The tribe of Benjamin will be next. The leader of the Benjamites is Abadan, son of Gideonai. His military division numbers 35,400. The total in their military divisions who belong to Ephraim's encampment number, 108,100. They will move out third. Dan's military divisions will camp on the north side under their banner. The leader of the Danites is Abiezar, son of Amishadai. His military division numbers 62,700. The tribe of Asher will camp next to it. 
The leader of the Asherites is Pagiel, son of Akron. His military division numbers 41,500. The tribe of Naphtali will be next. The leader of the Naphtalites is Ahira, son of Enan. His military division numbers 53,400. The total number who belong to Dan's encampment is 157,600. They are to move out last with their banners. These are the Israelites registered by their ancestral families. The total number in the camps by their military divisions is 603,550. But the Levites were not registered among the Israelites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. They camped by their banners in this way and moved out the same way, each man by his clan and ancestral family. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 1. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caper berry has no effect. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and the mourners will walk around in the street. Before the silver cord is snapped, and the gold bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And even though we didn't focus on that today, it is a good passage to conclude. So I'm going to read it one more time before we go to our last passage. The end of Ecclesiastes. Beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Psalm chapter 36 verse 1. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Dread of God has no effect on him, for with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. The words from his mouth are malicious and deceptive. He has stopped acting wisely and doing good. Even on his bed, he makes malicious plans. He sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not reject evil. Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your judgments like the deepest sea. 
Lord, you preserve people and animals. How priceless your faithful love is, God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream, for the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. Spread your faithful love over those who know you and your righteousness over the upright in heart. Do not let the foot of the arrogant come near me or the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers have fallen. They have been thrown down and cannot rise. Well, brothers and sisters, may the Lord spread his faithful love over those of you who know him and his righteousness over the upright in heart. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week. And may the Lord cause this coronavirus epidemic gripping the world to fall and come to naught. May he in wrath remember mercy. May he bless us and take care of us. God's blessings to you. Godspeed.